0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with historian Peter Kuznick. It's the second part of our interview about the film Oppenheimer, where we're going to dig into the Cold War, but more so the domestic objectives of the Cold War. In other words, smashing unions, smashing labor, attempting to smash progressive politics. Uh, that gets touched on a bit. In the movie, uh, but we're going to dig a lot deeper. I'll be back in just a few seconds. In my last interview with Peter Kuznick, we discussed the Oppenheimer film, as I said, and we got, we talked about what the film got right and what the film got wrong about the history of the bomb. Today, we're going to look at the domestic objectives of the Cold War and why the Cold War as such usually refers to the post World War II world and is usually described as a geopolitical struggle. There were clear domestic objectives in McCarthyism and the House of Un American Activities Committee. People were uh, accused of being agents of the Soviet Union, but it really wasn't much about that. It was, and you'll find out what it was more about. In fact, the forces behind McCarthyism had been at work long before the war. On April 29, 1933, President Roosevelt gave a speech titled A Message to Congress on Curbing Monopolies. Here's a quote from the opening of that address. The first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in essence, is fascism. Ownership of the government by an individual, by a group, or by any other controlling private power. Second truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if its business system does not provide employment and produce and distribute goods in such a way as to sustain an acceptable standard of living. Both lessons hit home. Among us today, a concentration of private power without equal in history is growing. Uh, Now, again, that was 1938. It could have been written yesterday, I suppose. The forces that FDR was talking about apparently tried to organize a coup against him in 1933. So we're going to talk about the roots of American fascism and the far right. And now joining me is Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute, at American University. He and Oliver Stone co-authored 10-part Showtime documentary film series and the book, and I'd really urge you to go get the book because there's lots in the book that isn't in the series, uh, both titled The Untold History of the United States. He's begun his fourth three-year term as Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer. Thanks very much for joining us, Peter.
1: Good to be with you, Paul.
0: So wh- why don't we start with what we know about this This coup, which, as far as I can make out, the coup itself, uh, uh, the conspiracy is in 1933, uh, but it starts to get public in 1934. So so, so what happened?
1: Uh, Well, the American Liberty League, organization of right-wing businessmen, formed in 1934, and they were committed to defeating the New Deal in any way they could. Remember that Roosevelt came to office without a clear philosophy and without a clear program. During the campaign, he was criticizing Hoover from the right on occasion, saying that Hoover was running too big a deficit, they had unbalanced the budget, the government was spending too much. But when Roosevelt took office and saw how serious the problems were, beginning with the collapse of the banking system, uh, he moved much more boldly. And he didn't have a clear philosophy, but was willing to try. It was the experimentation, it was pragmatism much more, although some of the people he put into office were clearly had a much better vision about how to reform the country and reform the economy. And Roosevelt's policies became much more progressive. Uh, they were somewhat t- timid and tentative in the first few years. But by 1934, 35, 36, what we saw was an upsurge of labor and an upsurge of the left. And so beginning in the 34 midterm elections, and even more in 36, the left had taken over the country. After 34, the New York Times editorialized, the New York Times said, the Republican right wing has been wiped out in the United States. And they did even better in 1936. So and, and that was on the shoulders of the labor movement. In 1934, we had the general strikes. We had the Toledo auto workers in Ohio, led by the Mustyites. We had the Minneapolis Teamster strike, led by the Trotskyists. And then we had the San Francisco Longshoremen strike, led by Harry Bridges and the communists. And these were all organizing the unemployed, to support the workers rather than have them fighting against each other. And in those cities, not only did the workers on strike rally, but the rest of the population rallied to support of the unions and the strikers, as these would go on for days. And some of them were violent, uh, as the police tried to crack down on them. I think it was Eric Severi, the later famous journalist, who said that when he saw the attack on the strikers in Minneapolis. He could sense what fascism meant in his bones. And so, in 1934, uh, what we saw at 1933 was a coup attempt in which several people approached Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler was a very important figure who's been largely lost to history. Butler was the most decorated Marine in the country, uh, Butler should have been the head of the Marines, uh, but he uh, was a little too outspoken for some people. And, uh, but he'd been involved. He wrote a very important book called War is a Racket, where he talks about what he said, I didn't understand at the time, but we put it all together. And when I look at all the places we intervened, we were going into country after country to overthrow governments and overthrow revolutionary forces in the interests of American biz, big, big business and American bankers, so it's a great statement that should be widely remembered. Uh, and so, but Butler was extremely popular. He'd been involved in the Bonus March, uh, and in '32, makes me so damn mad. A whole lot of people speak of you as tramp. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and '18. No. <laughs> Uh, and they approached him and wanted him to organize a fascist coup to overthrow the Roosevelt government. Now, just to
0: explain that that March he got involved with if it's if I'm correct, is that the one with the vets where there were thousands of vets, and Eisenhower and some other generals wanted to
1: take out the machine guns, and in some instance did. Well, this Eisenhower, is in Washington Eisenhower and Patton were on MacArthur's staff. MacArthur was really the head of the U.S. forces. And MacArthur, interestingly, is going to be one of the people who was behind, or allegedly behind, this coup that occurred in the 1930s also. So MacArthur was very right-wing in his views. Eisenhower was not. And Eisenhower and MacArthur had a long-standing feud that begins at least at this point in 1932. And Eisenhower was ordered by MacArthur to support the troops as they went after the bonus marchers. The bonus marchers were World War I veterans who'd been promised a bonus, but off in the future. And they came to Washington to organize to speed up the bonus so they could get, because they were desperate during the Depression in 1932. That was really the nadir, the low point in the collapse of the economy, late 32, early 33. And so MacArthur and the troops moved in. They attacked the uh, the protesters, former uh, also veterans. They burned down their village. They tra- tra- chased them through the streets. And when Roosevelt saw this, he turned to an associate who was with and says, This will get me elected because Hoover was blamed for this.
0: And Butler went out and defended the vets
1: and became their hero. Medley Butler, yes. Medley Butler did. And he was, a, he was already a hero, an heroic figure. He'd been in the Marine Corps for decades and was so very, very highly decorated. Uh, and so uh, they approached him in '34, knowing that he was the most popular figure among the military and the veterans, and he could organize a coup if he was so inclined, but he was not. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead
0: an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely,
1: and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. And he told them that he would organize a half million men to defeat them if they tried any of these kinds of shenanigans. So in 1934, late 34 November, the Congress had hearings. And the person who chaired the hearings was Congressman McCormick. And McCormick's comments are quite important, Uh, if I can find them. He says, uh, so uh, after the hearings uh, and hearing the testimony, he said that they had been able to verify, this is John McCormick of of Massachusetts, who's the chair of the House committee. He said that we'd been able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler except for the McGuire's direct solicitation of his services, which the committee accepted as fact. And they concluded that, quote, attempts to establish a fascist organization in the United States were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. So the evidence is
0: overwhelming. Even though at the time, the New York Times trashed Butler and said this
1: was all made up, make-believe? Well, they weren't the only ones. But the New York Times was a very conservative newspaper then. And we could say the same thing now, but it's a different form of conservatism. Uh, So the the Times was clearly against Butler, the New Deal, the kind of reforms that were taking place. Uh, But the 30s were a very interesting period which is why I like to teach courses on the 30s, because we had so much radicalism. You know, a big debate is, was the 30s the red decade? And you and I have talked about that in the past. Uh, but if it wasn't the red decade, there was certainly a decade in which the communists and socialists and reformers and radicals were reaching a large proportion of the American people. And it was and the overwhelming view was that capitalism had failed and that the evidence of that just like the evidence of climate change now for people who are not believers is all the floods and the fires and the extreme weather they see around them well the evidence in the 30s of the collapse of communism of collapse of capitalism was all the unemployment and the suffering and the misery and so roosevelt moved in with new deal programs to in many ways ameliorate and assuage some of that suffering and the New Deal succeeded in that regard. And the New Deal put people back to work. And the New Deal built roads. And it built parks. And it built airports. And it clothed people. And did, and supported the writers. And supported uh, all kinds of what would be considered far to the left of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party today, or at least some of them. Now, I'm just saying that it was a, a Roosevelt you know, with, without being a socialist by any means uh, and saying he believed in the Democratic Party and, you know, in capitalism, effectively, uh, was willing to experiment with ideas that would be considered radical because the economy was in such dire straits. And if many people, like like you know, Joseph Kennedy, senior Said they supported Roosevelt because he saved capitalism from the capitalists, and in many ways he did do that with his reform programs. In but
0: thirty-eight, actually... when in thirty-eight when FDR the uh, makes gives that warning, and and that speech I quoted off the top of curbing monopolies, um, he says, and I he's mostly I think referring to the banking sector that if the banking sector gets control of the state. Uh, that's a form of fascism. Um, and yep. that's uh, what what the country seemed to be on the road to until until the war breaks out. Um, and, and the, but, the right sees- seized...
1: to... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Roosevelt's attitude during the second New Deal, the second hundred days, in 1935 on, is he's had it with the business community. He tried to placate them, tried to be an Obama- And bend over backwards to placate the bankers, in some ways, Uh, but and even as his banking reform, he was in a position in '33 to nationalize the banking system, and many experts at the time said he could have done it without a word of protest, but he chose not to do that. But by '35 he had had it, you know, and he said that uh, you know the the the, these critics in the business community are like people who if you dive in and rescue somebody from drowning then they later berate you for not having saved their hat also. And so what Roosevelt says by 35 is I welcome their hatred. I welcome their hatred. You know, let them say whatever they want about me, but you know, they represent the past and they represent the obstacle to progress and to humane solutions and we're going to do this without them. And he had the backing of the labor movement, and he had that upsurge, and had people voting, uh, and voting in favor of left-wing politicians and programs. And so, he was in a position to do that.
0: But he didn't do something, and and maybe because he's heading into a war and he knows it, but uh, he talks about the concentration of wealth and ownership and the banking sector. But when he makes that speech about curbing monopolies, um, he didn't actually curb the banking monopoly, in, in the sense that there were some regulations,
1: but there wasn't any nationalization. By by thirty eight, he had lost his dr- fervor for reform. And he got a huge victory in thirty six, but in thirty seven, he tries to ref- the Supreme Court reform, adding justices for everybody over a certain age who didn't retire. Uh, the, you remember the Supreme Court had been voting against New Deal policies until 35, really. And then finally, somebody switched sides, and they start to support that. But they voted against the National Industrial Recovery Act. They and said that was unconstitutional. The Agricultural Adjustment Act said that was unconstitutional. And so Roosevelt decides he's got to reform the Supreme Court. You know, in some ways, a similar situation to what we face now with this extreme right-wing Supreme Court. It goes against the will of the American people, much like Supreme Court did then. But then, at least, the Supreme Court switched and started to support New Deal programs. But Roosevelt decided to try to pack the court anyway in thirty-seven and overreached. And that, but it's also shortly thereafter. Well, then, what happens at thirty-seven is he decides that he's going to rebalance the budget and he cuts a lot of the New Deal spending, and the economy plummets into another recession in 1937. And by 38 he's announcing that uh, the reform phase of the New Deal is over, which was tragic because we had, at that point, this big upsurge among physicians, and they were calling for creating a national health care system, one that was far more inclusive and far more radical than anything we've seen since. And Wagner, Senator Wagner from New York, introduced legislation in early 39 to achieve that. And many thought that that would be the high point of the New Deal. But Roosevelt basically undercut the support for that. And it was partly because going into the election in 1940, re-election, partly because he didn't want to alienate and antagonize the very reactionary American Medical Association. Uh, So in some ways, He was going the right direction by 40, in some ways the wrong direction. The best thing he did in 40 was to appoint, choose Henry Wallace as his vice president. Uh, And even though he knew that Wallace was, or because he knew that Wallace was a leading anti-fascist in the cabinet, he knew that Wallace was extremely popular. He knew that Wallace was far to the left of Roosevelt himself as a real progressive, and he wanted to shore up that wing also. Uh, And so that was among the most visionary things that Roosevelt did. In the last interview, I'm going to jump now
0: to the end of World War II. um, In the last interview, we talked about how the the, the real objective of the Cold War uh, was, was less about real concern about military expansionism of the Soviet Union, which I think is now clear there wasn't, uh, not in a military way, Uh, but they were really concerned was the spread of national liberation movements who were going to gravitate towards alliance with socialism and the Soviet Union. But in terms of the domestic situation with McCarthyism and the House of Un-American Activities Committee, while the targets are all accused of being essentially agents of the Soviet Union, um, that isn't really what it was about. Was it? I mean, 99.9% of the people they went after, uh, their objectives were not to be agents of the Soviet Union. So, so what, what, what was the domestic objectives of the far right uh, in terms of what was going on and and why did at least for some time Truman and the Democrats at least go
1: along with it, if not quite participate? Now they participate. Uh, beginning in 1946, the uh, chair of the Republican Party said that the upcoming elections are going to be a choice between republicanism and communism. So it was as early as 46 that they began accusing the Democrats, of being uh, overrun by members of the Communist Party. The implication is, and the goal was to undermine the New Deal, uh, to argue that the New Deal was really a communist influenced program. The business community still hated the New Deal, they still resisted progressive reform in 1946, but they were in a weakened position at the time. And uh, so but they they keep up this drumbeat of attack on the New Deal and the Democrats as being communist infiltrated, and we had up in Canada, as you might know, uh, an instance in the uh, of someone in the Soviet embassy in Ottawa uh, getting involved in espionage, and I think that was in '46 also. So in '47, <laughs> the uh, Republicans are Feeling much more aggressive, and they begin the some of the red baiting. They escalate the red baiting in 1947, and they the first group they go after they target as the weakest link in American national security is the atomic scientists. Uh, but and they accuse uh, E.U. Condon and others of threatening U.S. national security in 47. But the first group they really investigate was Hollywood. Now, did Hollywood pose a serious threat in terms of supporting the Soviet Union? No, but Hollywood was a hotbed of leftists and radicals, and they had formed the anti-fascist organizations in the 1930s and early 40s, and they were outspoken in their pro-union, anti-fascist views, and so they begin uh, the uh, they go after the Hollywood Ten, starting in 1947, uh, and so, so there's this crackdown taking place. But the other part that you mentioned is very important, and that Truman decides he's going to get out ahead of this, and he does so by uh, calling for his own loyalty security hearings and saying he's going to have his own loyalty purge of people in the government, of government employees. And they began having rallies at which they would pledge allegiance to the United States. They were saying, God bless America, and they would sign these loyalty oaths. Uh, and the, the interesting comment was by Clark Clifford, who was one of Truman's closest aides on domestic policy. And he later said, The president didn't attach fundamental importance to the so-called communist scare. He thought it was a lot of baloney, but political pressure was such that he had to recognize it. We didn't believe there was a real problem. A problem was being manufactured. There was a certain element of hysteria. And so they began to purge communists or people who wouldn't sign loyalty oaths or people who had been communists at some point. Uh, And the kind of things, and and an Interior Department Loyalty Board chairman said, of course, the fact that a person believes in racial equality doesn't prove that he's a communist, but it certainly makes you look twice, doesn't it? And this is the kind of thing, uh, but this gets picked up everywhere, especially California, but New York also. And very soon, we've got 22 states that are imposing loyalty oaths. And one of the groups they go after is the teachers. And in California, they went after the universities. At Berkeley, at Stanford, they purged the uh, left-wing professors. But This takes place all over the country. We mentioned the tie-in to Oppenheimer. Well, Oppenheimer himself went, you know, was looking for cover by ingratiating himself to the powers that be to show that he was really loyal to them. Uh, however, his brother Frank, who was a member of the Communist Party, does get fired. I think it was from the University of Minnesota at the time. So that was happening. Scientists and other professors. Yeah, there's a, were there's getting... an
0: important mo- moment in the film when they're having this uh, review of Oppenheimer's security clearance, and his wife comes and testifies and gives this big speech how we're not communists. Maybe we were fooled before, but we're not anymore. And it kind of plays into this whole hysteria because the, the, the vast majority of people who are involved in the Communist Party or all the various socialist organizations are active in unions. They were fighting for you know reform and progressive ideals within the United States. Many of them, in fact, didn't even support the Soviet Union. It wasn't like a monolithic pro-Soviet left either. But the objective was to crush, I think to a large extent, the trade union movement. If I'm right, in in was it in 1945-46? There were more strikes than there had been in any year previous yeah. to the war, and the domestic agenda of the Republicans is this has to be crushed.
1: Yes, um, the communists were played a crucial role in building the labor movement in the 1930s. Communist organizers were the backbone. Of the organizing effort in auto, in steel, in rubber, and in other key sectors. When the CIO was organizing among unskilled and skilled workers in the mass industrial sector, the AFL had been very narrow and parochial and conservative. And now the CIO comes on the scene in 35, and the communists are the principal organizers. The communists were also the leading spokesman leading organizations speaking out for black civil rights in the United States, for integrating baseball. Jackie Robinson, despite his later testimony against Paul Robeson, uh, they were in the forefront of the anti-fascist movement, which is why the 39 reversal during the Nazi-Soviet pact is so appalling to many people, because the communists have been the leaders of the anti-fascist movement until Hitler and Stalin signed that pact. In thirty nine, and then the communists quiet down on their anti fascism. Many people hated the opportunism. But the communists were and the Soviet Union was seen in many ways very positively in the nineteen thirties, partly out of ignorance. People didn't know the atrocities of Stalinism yet. But the in the early thirties, and I've written about this, the Soviet Union was being portrayed not only in the nation and the republic but also in Business Week, uh, Christian Science Monitor. uh, I mean, all the very conservative, Wall Street Journal, conservative publications as the only country in the world that had not been touched by the Depression. When the Soviet trading organization, there was a rumor in the early 30s uh, that that Amtorg was going to be hiring American workers to go to work in the Soviet Union. Thousands stormed the Amtorg offices The next day, American workers wanted to go to the Soviet Union to find work, and they had this vision that the Soviets were providing whole education, uh, housing, health care, the kind of safety net that the capitalist countries were not providing. A lot of that was overblown. There were terrible things happening in the Soviet Union, as we later learned. But the Soviets were seen as the country that was organizing their five-year plans around science and technology. And so American scientists were greatly influenced as they became increasingly left-wing in the 1930s, greatly influenced by the Soviet model. And the physiologist conference in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union in 1935 was the high point, really. But there was this great lot of exchanges between the American and the Soviet scientists in the 30s. And the Americans were envious of the Soviets until later in the decade when some of their allies are getting purged and disappearing, and they start to wake up a little bit to the ugly side of Stalinism. the uh, There's so much
0: of this history we can talk about, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of jump to a point. You know, I'm, People that watch the analysis know I'm working on this film uh, based on Daniel Ellsberg's work, and he writes about you know, whatever was going on domestically in the Soviet Union, uh, and as you say, atrocities and and the development of a police state. But, But Ellsberg came to realize that, in fact, what he had thought, that Stalin was another Hitler seeking world domination, he says that turned out to be a fantasy, that the Soviet Union did not have these kinds of global military objectives. And that the American elites knew it uh, but it was very convenient to keep portraying that as as the you know the Russians are coming the Russians are coming and to a large extent because it helped intimidate and crush the
1: left at home yeah and we see a lot of that going on today very very similar. People who attribute to Putin this vast plan to take over the world I think are, Wrong, you know. The, the, I don't think Putin has that kind of vision. But I have a lot of, I know a lot of people, very intelligent people, who disagree with me firmly on this question about Putin's motivation. Yeah, I, I disagree
0: that... with you a little bit on this. when I look at some of the ideological, philosophical uh, uh, appeal of Putin to some of the uh, really pro, even pro-fascist, pro-Nazi Russians. Um uh he, it's as bad as the Ukrainian's revival of uh, the Ukrainian fascists. But I, I would like I would say if Canada could uh appear true uh, Justin Trudeau, I should say, he would love to rule the world. I mean, I think it's inherent in all these bloody governments and systems. Um uh, but but let's not argue about Putin right now. But but the, the certainly the accusi- the overblown
1: accusations are similar. Let me just say that let me just say that I'm also a harsh critic of Putin. I'm not a fan of Putin by any means, and I don't support the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. But but yeah,
0: anyway, certainly it's overblown. uh, the, The worst thing that's overblown about Putin, I think, is the total hypocrisy of the people that are overblowing it yeah, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if anyone's tried to rule the world, it's the US. So it's very hard for them you know, to to have any credibility uh, accusing someone else of that. But let's let's park that for another day. Um, and I know you agree with what I just said.
1: Yes. Um, so, so so but the essentially thing Dan Dan, there's been a,
0: sorry, the sorry Dan
1: I mean, Dan starts off as a real cold warrior. I remember some of the first discussions that he and I had We're comparing where I was coming from in the, I wasn't smart and, you know, alert enough yet in the 50s, but, you know, later my views on the early Cold War and and Dan's were a little bit different still. Uh, And, you know, Dan starts off as a real hardline anti-communist and a cold warrior. And it's his gradual awakening that allows him to do what he did with the Pentagon Papers, to be the critic he became of Vietnam. Uh, But even before he gets that realization, as you know, he's already becoming a very strong critic of U.S. nuclear policy, even before his worldview broadens. Uh, But the point you were making before, about 45, and then wanting to go after labor, is absolutely correct. You know, uh, and, and it's going to take a little bit of time before they can. But they do put into the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which Truman vetoed, um, they put into there Section 9H. And Section 9H effectively calls for affidavits to be signed by the leaders of the unions uh, and the Communists had not only organized the CIO and the mass industrial unions in the United States, uh, about probably 20% of the communist uh, 20% of the CIO unions were communist dominated after World War II. And what we see in 47, 48, and even a little bit later is the purging of the left wing of the labor movement, so, they got to start with the mine mi, my, my mill and smelters worker.
0: Well, I need to get a little moment of transparency here for me because my father was a business agent for mine mill and had to leave the United—he was Canadian, had been in the U.S. and had to come back to Canada because uh, he was assuming he was going to uh, be targeted.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The mine. The, they were a very progressive union, communist-dominated. Uh, but so was the UE, United Electrical Workers, which was a huge union. Uh, the West Coast Longshoremen, the ILWU, led by Harry Bridges, who had run the strike in 1934 in San Francisco. The, the communists were very influential in the, in, the, in the ports. And even later, when I show my students some of the anti-communist films, that were made in the early 50s when Hollywood turned out about 50 anti-communist films that were all terrible in order to show their loyalty. Two of them that I I show them some clips from, uh, the woman on Pier 13, was also called I Married a Communist, and uh, and big Jim McLean, John Wayne film. It's about the communists taking over the ports, you know, in, in order to partly to block the shipment of goods during the Korean War. But this is this was an important theme, and the communists were enormously influential among the dock workers, the longshoremen, the stevedores, and uh, so they go. So they purge them from all these different unions, especially the ones the communists dominated. But the CIO helps them, uh, and the CIO uh, also runs unions against them in the areas in which they still have influence. For people that don't know, CIO was one of the main. Uh, Union central, national central, Congress so. of Industrial Organizations, yeah. founded in thirty-five. Initially tr- uh, started by John Lewis, the mine workers head, but the organizers they brought in were the communists, and they organized the vast majority of American workers, the huge unions when well, m- the labor movement was powerful. But the labor movement is never going to be powerful again in the United States after they purge the communists and that the communists are also purged from the steel workers, and they're purged from the uh, the auto workers. This goes on. And so what happens is, just like with the um, civil rights movement, what does it mean to purge W. B. Du Bois from the NAACP because he supports Henry Wallace in 1948? What does it mean to effectively cancel Paul Robeson even before the State Department takes away His passport. I mean, we see this with the left wing of the civil rights movement, tragically. We see with the left wing of the labor movement. We see with leftists in academia. Uh, We see with leftists in Hollywood. And what do we get as a result? We get a, a brain dead generation in the 1950s. And some of the scientists were still organizing on an anti nuclear basis, and the civil rights movement was not quite dead. In the 1950s, as we see, with Martin Luther King, some of whose close advisors were communists, um, but uh, we, but you know, the real heart of the reform movement from the 1930s and early 1940s was stifled, was killed, was silenced, was undermined. The organizations were destroyed, and we get one of the worst decades in American history, and it's mind dead, and then people talk about the horror stories on every campus. And the theme behind the McCarthy purges was to turn Americans into a nation of stool pigeons. Mary McCarthy comments on this. I have Stone comments on this, where the test of being a good American is whether or not you're willing to name names, to turn your comrades in. And that's what they did. And they never found new... They didn't find communist infiltrators. They didn't find subversives. They didn't find spies. What they did was, if you were called before the committee in order to redeem yourself, you had to name names. And if you didn't know the names of anybody, they'd give you the names of people. And then, and that happened frequently. And so the people tried to restore their reputation by going before these committees and naming names. And every studio had their clearers, their smear and clear committees. Uh, and, and, you know, but if you look at who the people they went after were, the ones who formed the Committee on the First Amendment in 1947 to support the people who were being uh, victimized in Hollywood, this, some of the names I'll just throw out there, these were the ones who defended against the red baiters in Hollywood, Gregory Peck, Lucille Ball, Bert Lancaster, Robert Ryan, Frank Sinatra, Edward G. Robinson, Robert Young, uh, Paulette Goddard, Henry Fonda, Catherine Hepburn, Pete Seeger, Leonard Bernstein, Ethel Barrymore, Eddie Cantor, Kirk Douglas, uh, Deanna Durbin, Ava Gardner, Benny Goodman, Walter Houston, Fritz Lang, Peter Laurie, Groucho Marx, Orson Welles, Lauren Bacall. I mean, it, it goes on and on. And That's just all the of theater. these people
0: you know, risking their own careers. And for those younger people who have never heard of most of these people, these were the, you know, amongst the biggest stars in Hollywood, which is
1: why they could do And this. on the other side, you have the John Waynes and the Ronald Reagans. Ronald Reagan, especially as the head of the president of the Screen Actors Guild. You no, know, Reagan was working with the FBI to purge members and for being disloyal. So, uh, yeah, there was a fight going on. But the majority of the creative people in America, the writers, the Hollywood ma- filmmakers, the artists, the scientists, the academics, were all on the left. And if they weren't members of the Communist Party, they were supporters and through the Communist Party front groups. And and the reform movement in the United States was killed. And we don't see it reemerge until the mid to late 1960s. and the Vietnam War. 17 years yeah uh, when the left is going to be driven underground largely silenced discredited and what they managed to do is equate dissent with disloyalty that's the dangerous thing we see that happening again when those of us who are critics of U.S policy on Ukraine are accused of being Putin's you know dupes and you know Putin apologists most of the people who, are, want to see peace in Ukraine, hate what Putin's doing, and don't support that. But that doesn't mean we want to see nuclear war or that we want to see unending war in Ukraine with another half a million dead and wounded a year from now and no progress being made. So, I mean, but that same kind of neo-McCarthyism that we see playing out now is the same as what was happening then. And the media has always been dominated by those people. We know from the documents that came out how many of the people in the media, uh, which is why you need to be doing these kinds of shows, were on the CIA payroll. Hmm. They've always been. And now they're not necessarily on the CIA payroll, but they're on the CNN and MSNBC and Fox News payrolls. All the admirals and generals that come out every day when people who are critics in any way are not allowed to breathe a word on mainstream American television or really radio. I mean, I saw what happened with Oliver Stone and me when it came to even NPR. If you're a, a critic of American empire and you call it out for what it is, you can't, you even get canceled on NPR. You know, and, and after we did some of them, you know, we did an initial. Round of shows on MSNBC and CNN and elsewhere. But then, but that way, silence us after that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you and only that because of Stone Celebrity. If it hadn't been for that, you wouldn't have got a minute on that, those networks.
1: Right. And I don't get a minute now on mainstream television. I do 230 TV interviews around the world on mainstream television, in every other country, except in the United States, my own country. I got to know Gore Vidal pretty well before he died. Uh, I, you know, in the late '60s,
0: Gore Vidal was one of the most prominent political pundits on television. There's the famous debate between him and Buckley Jr. Uh, during the Democratic Party convention. Uh, a massive celebrity in the media, and as his critique became more uh, sharp on U.S. foreign policy, U.S. imperialism, he would use those words "empire." He disappeared from mainstream media.
1: Yeah. He wrote, talked about American empire a little too openly. But not just me and Oliver, you know, Howard Zinn never would get on mainstream media. Noam Chomsky, Dan Ellsberg. At the end, Dan had all this applause, right? They finally recognized Dan's great contribution to humanity, and he was getting lionized. But between the Pentagon Papers and the end of his life, uh, he was very rarely getting that kind of public acclaim. And, and, and
0: when they did interview him and over and over again in, in the few months before he died, it was all about whistleblowing and the Pentagon Papers. They didn't want to talk about his critique of American nuclear policy, new, uh, American uh, war policy in general. He barely got asked about those things.
1: But he that's what he wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, they're going to have to yeah. watch our film. By the way, it's going to be called How to Stop a Nuclear War. <laughs> but it's too early. There's nothing to see yet. We're, we're at least a year away. Um, listen, we, there's a lot we more we can talk about all this, and uh, and I so I think we're going to have to do another uh, another segment because this uh, this attempt by the far right to if they can't win an election to use extra parliamentary means to get power uh, mm-hmm. January sixth uh, wasn't the first time. Uh, There's a whole history of this, including uh, what happened around Kennedy. Uh, So uh, let's not get into it now. I'll just tease it. Uh, But the far right, yeah, go ahead. Tease
1: it. it, Those recent statements by Paul Landis, this uh, Secret Service agent who was in the car behind Kennedy's when he got shot, about the magic bullet, that totally discredits the magic bullet theory, the idea of the lone assassin. I mean, this is really devastating to the people who made that case on the Warren Commission. It's really exposed the hollowness of that claim, which most Americans didn't believe from the get-go. You know, and even before Oliver's movie JFK came out, Americans were not buying the Warren Commission report.
0: Well, I would recommend everybody go back, especially younger people who probably haven't seen this, but go watch Seven Days in May. Uh, which was is about an attempted uh, right-wing military coup against a pro- sort of s- centrist, progressive uh, president who just wants to have an arms limitation treaty with, with the Soviet yes. Union, and they try to overthrow him. Uh, I just found out recently that apparently Kennedy actually asked Frankenheimer to make that movie because he thought such a thing might happen to him. Okay, I'm not going to say any yeah. more now. We'll do it more later. We're, we're going to do another one in a few weeks. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the TheAnalysis.News. And please don't forget that we can only do the, this if, if you donate. You can go to the website, TheAnalysis.News, click the Donate button, get on the email list, and uh, we'll be back with more. Thanks again.